This episode of Epicenter Bitcoin is brought to you by Fairlay. Fairlay is a Bitcoin prediction market where you can place predictions on the likelihood of sporting events, the Bitcoin price, or current affairs. You earn money if your predictions are correct. Head over to fairlay.com slash epicenter, that's F-A-I-R-L-A-Y dot com slash epicenter to place your first bet today. Hello, welcome to Epicenter Bitcoin, the show which talks about the technologies, projects, and startups driving decentralization and the global cryptocurrency revolution. My name is Sébastien Couture. And I'm Brian Varian Crane. Uh, we're here on episode uh, 53 with Ariana Simpson. Ariana is, uh, works at BitGo. I was introduced to her when I was at, uh, in a New York trip this summer and I wanted to meet up with her, although it didn't happen, but we kind of... Uh, you know, stayed in touch a bit. So uh, now that she's at Bitco, I thought, well, that would be a great time to do a podcast and talk about uh, some of the things uh, they focus on, which uh, particularly is a multi-sig. So, Rihanna, it's good to have you on. Hi, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Thanks for coming on. Um, maybe we could start off uh, by introducing yourself. Sure. Um, so my name is Ariana Simpson, as you mentioned. I uh, grew up in Italy, moved to the U.S. afterwards, and I actually studied nothing to do uh, with computer science or cryptography or Bitcoin. Like most of us, I think. Um, studied international politics in Spanish, but decided to, um, I kind of fell into Bitcoin about, oh, let's see, a year and a half ago now. And um, as soon as I read the white paper, I was hooked. So I really started to delve into it and started writing about it a lot. Um, and this was while I was still uh, working at Facebook. I was basically um, working with some of the big managed accounts on the advertising side. Um, but Bitcoin became my sort of real interest. And so I decided that ultimately I wanted to um, move into the industry full time, which is how I ended up at BitGo. Cool. And so you've been working at BitGo since uh, August, I believe. So it's been a few months. How are you enjoying it so far? Yep, that's right. Yeah, it's been a great few months. Um, really exciting. Obviously, we're still we're still young, and it's an industry that's changing at the speed of light. So, um, you know, never a dull moment. But I think it's it's a really exciting time to be working in Bitcoin, particularly with a really great team. Um, and I think even within an industry that's fast moving, our focus on security really makes it all the more exciting in the sense that security might not always seem like the most uh, the most thrilling field to work in, in the sense that a lot of what's happening is really happening behind the scenes. And so you're not necessarily always adding a cool new feature, but you are building infrastructure and architecture that's really, really important. And um, you can't, you can never kind of let the security become legacy. You're constantly having to update and make changes um, because the minute you start to say, oh, okay, I'm done, um, that's when you get, you start to run into problems. So it's, it's constantly evolving and that makes it really exciting. Yeah. And I, I guess we've seen a lot of things evolve in, in terms of uh, usability of security. I mean, I'd just like to pull out a few examples here. I mean, before we start talking about BitGo, uh, just under a year ago, we were having a discussion about how to safely secure your Bitcoins. And at the time, uh, you know, this was one of the solutions. And 
these, uh, I believe, BIP38 uh, cards were another solution. Uh, for those listening, I'm holding up a Raspberry Pi computer on which I installed Armory and printed out paper wallets uh, in order to store my Bitcoins. And, and then I think I gave one of those uh, backups to a friend on a, on a, on a, on a, on a USB stick. And then I gave another backup to another friend. And then, you know, these little BIP38 cards came out. I got a couple of those and I, same thing. I got three or four and I gave, I gave them to a few of my friends and thinking, you know, at the time that this was the way to secure your Bitcoins. And, and, and now, uh, a lot of companies, I mean, a few companies like coin, um, uh, Coinbase and Bitcoin are coming out with this really awesome and easy to use solution for uh, for securing your Bitcoins with multisig. And uh, so I guess, you know, just goes to show that in such a short amount of time, we've gone like leaps and bounds in terms of usability for securing your Bitcoins. Yeah, I think that's really important in the sense that, um, you know, in this kind of field, you're constantly working to... Um, you're working against a trade-off in the sense that the most secure storage is not necessarily the most usable. Uh, actually, I would say that they're, uh, in some sense, inversely proportional to one another. So what we're really working on is um, making the security uh, you know, as robust as possible, but also allowing companies, institutions, um, and individuals to transact. Because ultimately, if you know, everybody is holding their Bitcoin in some sort of um, storage that's not accessible, they will end up with no liquidity. And um, it's ultimately not really a very viable system. So building out the ability to actually transact and use the money while still keeping it secure is really important. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think we, we will see and perhaps we have seen to some extent uh, that that segregation as well, right? Where on the one hand, you have some people who are like advanced in their Bitcoin knowledge and they're like extremely enthusiastic and they want to sort of do it on their own and then they will use something like, you know, uh, what you said, you know, Raspberry offline armory and those kind of things. And then at the same time, that obviously doesn't scale um, and it doesn't, it, it doesn't, it's not going to work for the masses. And it's really nice that I think we have this, um, this powerful thing we can do, especially with uh, with multisig, where you can get uh, you can get both usability and you can get security, um, and and that's it's fantastic, no? Because it's it's sort of like a, a built-in two-factor authentication, or at least that's one way you can be used, uh, and I think it's really powerful in that way. Yeah, and I mean things like two-factor auth are all layers that we've added on to actual like you know basic. Uh, multi-sig wallets in the sense that, um, you know, we think that each of those pieces is very important, but it's not sufficient. And so layering on things like different levels of user permissions, um, corporate treasury policies, spending limits, um, again, two-factor auth, all of those are key pieces that we've built on top of the technology. Um, because, you know, this is, this is serious stuff. If you're if you're looking to hold or manage many millions of dollars, you want to take the appropriate precautions, um, and so that's that's what we're building. Um, so, if, if you look at uh, Bitgo, is it correct to say that the main focus of Bitgo is uh, to build enterprise tool and to build sort of the Bitcoin wallet that the companies will use in the future, whether that 
is uh, maybe investment funds holding Bitcoin or perhaps also merchants that decide they don't want to convert all their income uh, through payment processor uh, to fiat currency directly, but they want to keep holding Bitcoins, but, but they do need to have some sort of uh, due processes to make sure that happens in a secure way. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um, so we do have a free consumer wallet, but we're definitely focused on the enterprise side of things. Um, you know, multi-sig is important for consumers as well, particularly if they're holding, um, you know, a sizable amount. But in terms of the additional policies and rules and structures that we've built, um, they're definitely enterprise focused. Um, you know, if you have a company that needs to, for example, give its auditors access to um, access to its wallets and access to its transactions, but without actually giving o handing over the ability to spend, that's traditionally something that's not been really possible or easy. Um, so, you know, we've built in things like view only access. So if you have auditors or accountants who need to be able to see into your balances and your transaction history, that's something that you can do using one of our wallets. Um, we also have the ability to set um, spending limits. So the essentially all of these permissions are set at the wallet level. So um, companies can decide to set up different wallets with different spending levels different levels of um, admin, view only, and uh, spend only access. And basically what this does is it enables companies to construct their, um, you know, their storage and their financial systems in the way that makes the most sense for them, which is really, I think, uh, making it a lot easier for companies and institutions to hold and transact. Um, while still maintaining a really good, uh, a really great security model. I'm also kind of curious because it, it seems to me uh, what you guys are building is very much something um, that for the future. And I, and I think that's a good thing because if Bitcoin will be successful, I, I totally believe that it's going to be a huge demand for this. But it also seems that like, it's something where the demand right now is probably really limited. So I, I'm curious right now, is the demand that you are seeing primarily from financial institutions holding Bitcoins? Or are you also starting to see maybe some large emergence um, that are actually keeping some of the Bitcoins that uh, consumers spend with them? Sure. Um, well, I would say that this is definitely something that will, uh, you know, we obviously see it as a market that's expanding. Um, but even right now, there's a lot of interest from, um, you know, hedge funds that are starting to hold a percentage of their total assets in Bitcoin, um, who, you know, hedge funds may be buying and trading off of it. They may be buying and holding um, companies. You know, we have, for example, the, the Bitcoin shop that um, holds a percentage of their assets in Bitcoin um, and they use BitGo to do so. Um, and even institutions, for example, the Bitcoin Foundation um, uses BitGo and they use, uh, they use it not just for holding, but also for their operational needs. Um, so yes, it's definitely a market that we see as growing, which is, I would say, always what you want to look for when you're uh, you know, starting a company, because if the market's kind of capped out, then that's not necessarily the best market to go after. But even now, I think there's... Um, you know, there's substantial interest um, 
and we're constantly onboarding new companies and new financial institutions. Um, we just announced our partnership with Terra Exchange, and we have a really interesting model there because basically um, their clients are using BitGo to hold collateral for their swaps product. And um, so that's, you know, that's another whole channel of people who are interested in, in trading uh, based off of Bitcoin using both Bitcoin and dollars. Um, and that's another thing we're involved in. So it's, you know, the, the market isn't necessarily going to be composed of just companies holding Bitcoin or just institutions or any one of those, but we're really able to support a variety. Um, and so that, I think, expands the market substantially. Cool, that's very interesting. That's not a, a use case that I follow, but of course makes total sense. Now, uh, can you also talk a little bit uh, before we move on to multisig uh, about Bitco as a company and uh, how many guy, how many people are you now? I know you also did raise a, a very large uh, round uh, of financing, which is um, which perhaps something we can we can talk about briefly. Sure. Um, so right now we are 11 full time. Um, we're growing a lot. So I was the third employee in August and we're already at 11. So um, that's, you know, quite a jump. We're hiring a lot, particularly on the engineering side. Obviously, we're, we're very technology focused. So um, that's kind of core to our business. So it obviously makes sense that we're hiring a lot of engineers, us and everybody else in, in the Bay Area. <laughs> um, but yeah, so the company's, the company's definitely growing, which is really exciting as well. So in terms of investment, um, we just in the past couple months closed a um, $12 million Series A, um, and that brought in a number of investors. It was led by Redpoint. Um, we have the uh, former CEO of uh, Veristein, um, Stratton Sklavos, um, a number of Bitcoin-related angels and funds. Um, so it's, yeah, I mean, it's definitely a, a group of investors that has a lot of uh, Eric Kahn, the former CTO of Netscape. Um, it's a lot of investors who have a great deal of experience in the early, um, the early internet days as well as in the financial space, um, which I think is really core. Um, in a lot of ways, we see what we're doing as similar to what Verisign did for the internet. Um, you know, uh, when when the internet was just kind of growing up, I would say, and so um, it makes a lot of sense for us to have those people on board. And I think it's really um, it's really great validation for what we're building as well. Now, uh, just very briefly before, maybe before the, um, we get a little bit more into the technical background, I wanted to talk about one thing that we've sort of uh, come back to again and again uh, with pretty much every company we talk about, which is the regulation side. But I think in this case, it is particularly interesting because multisig itself is uh, very interesting from a regulatory perspective, no? Because if you, let's say, have a, a two out of three multisig and three different parties hold one key, then can you actually say anyone is holding the key? It is a, it's not so clear um, in what way you can assign ownership there. And then, of course, that may affect whether you will be considered a money transmitter or not, whether you would have to get certain licenses or not. So um, 
what stage is uh, maybe you're thinking at or where do you see this going? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we do not see ourselves as, um, you know, anyone's money manager or anything like that. Um, we are not holding your funds at any point. We are really a software provider in the sense that um, we're building the technology to allow um, individuals, companies, um, et cetera, to hold and transact with their coins. But we are never responsible for those coins. We're not holding them. Um, and so, and that's, I think, most clearly evidenced by the fact that, um, you know, and this is available on GitHub if you want to check it out. We have basically released a tool that allows you to um, demonstrate that you can actually retrieve your funds completely independently of BitGo. So, you know, we don't have uh, ownership or claim or the ability to transact with your funds. So really, we are, um, we're really only providing the basically infrastructure um, in which to manage that. So if you go to GitHub right now, you can basically um, see that if you use your key and your backup key, so your two of the three keys, um, you don't even need BitGo's key in order to remove your funds. And I think that gives our, our customers a lot of confidence too, because I mean, this is a highly, highly unlikely scenario, but let's say BitGo is uh, frozen or we ever you know, fell off the face of the earth for whatever reason, um, everyone could still retrieve their funds. And I think that's really important. Um, and that kind of also demonstrates the facts that the fact that we're not actually um, holding anyone's funds. So in that regard, uh, because we're really more of a software platform, um, we don't, like the money transmitter licenses, that type of stuff that apply to companies like Coinbase, um, don't apply to us because we're not actually falling under the same sphere, if that makes sense. No, I, I agree that it makes sense. I think to the regulator, it might not make so much sense. However, uh, it, it's difficult to consider. I mean, I can definitely see how that's possible, but I think it's def difficult to consider a, a website as a software provider because uh, traditionally software is something that you install on your on your computer uh, that runs as a standalone, that doesn't run in a browser, that you don't need to access the internet to, to, uh, to get access to. So, I, I mean... And we'll get back to this in a minute, but um, I, th I think that there might be some uh, interesting questions that will arise in terms of Bitcoin regulation with regards to companies like BitGo that essentially offer a software that runs in your browser, which decrypts uh, that which signs transactions locally, and that doesn't, you know, and those companies don't have access to your keys. And so I think there might be some uh, some interesting questions to to be raised with regards to like what are these companies are they software providers are they and with regards to regulation like the bit license or other regulation that may come where do they fall into that uh, so maybe this is a good time to get into like multi sig uh, in a general sense uh, can you just sort of just briefly introduce uh, multi signature uh, architecture and perhaps just talk about the history in, uh, of multi sig. Sure. Um, so I think the, the best way to think about multisig is that it's really solving a fundamental problem in by eliminating a single point of failure um, in kind of the storage and the management of Bitcoin. So a traditional Bitcoin address has one private key 
And if that private key is lost or compromised, um, the funds are basically lost. And um, there's no, you know, if you accidentally throw away your hard drive, um, oops, unfortunately, <laughs> nothing we can do about it. Um, so that's, that's kind of um, obviously problematic, especially if you're holding large sums of, of Bitcoin. And what multisig does is it eliminates that problem um, by basically allowing for the creation of multiple keys. So um, the protocol itself allows for um, the creation of up to 15 keys. Um, and you can, you can basically create up to 15 keys and then require a smaller subset of those keys in order to sign transactions um, and move your, your funds around. So our uh, enterprise product uses a two of three multisig scheme. So essentially there's a total of three, um, three keys and two of those are needed in order to transact. Um, so we, multisig has been around since um, 2012 and we have been working on R&D in this field um, led by Mike Belshi, who's our CTO, um, since early 2013. And we've actually um, had to do a lot of work on not just BitGo's client, but actually patching a lot of the core libraries and things like that that are, um, you know, necessary in order to have a robust infrastructure upon which to build. So um, that's kind of, I guess, the, the origin of multisig. Um, obviously, as I mentioned, on top of that, we've built things like HD wallets, um, which we can go into in a little bit. And then the series of corporate treasury policies and rules that um, that I mentioned earlier. So the, for those of you who might be interested, so the multi-sig was introduced uh, in a uh, uh, Bitcoin improvement protocol a proposal, which is BIP16, which is titled the pay to script hash. Uh, you can get, find that on, uh, on GitHub. It's... It, it covers more than just multi-sig, right? I mean, it covers other things uh, like being able to split keys, I believe, and other things that were introduced. There, there are some other things than, than just multi-sig that were introduced with this uh, Bitcoin in, in improvement uh, proposal, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, I think multi-sig is kind of the most, um, I would say it's the most important aspect in the sense that it's the one that has the most, um, I would say, revolutionary impact on storage in the sense that um, it has a, a tangible effect on reducing the probability of hacking or, um, you know, user error. And obviously that's, that's core to making Bitcoin more usable. And I think um, if we want to get uh, mass adoption of Bitcoin, people need to be secure in the fact that their funds are not just going to evaporate. And multi-sig, I think, goes a long way in terms of doing that, which is why we've, you know, multiple times uh, issued calls for the industry to adopt multi-sig. And um, the amount of Bitcoin that's being held in uh, P2SH addresses is, I think, just under one and a half percent at this point, which is still a very small alarmingly small, frankly, um, percentage, but it is growing quite rapidly. So um, there's a website, actually, I believe it's called p2sh.info. Um, yeah, I was going to mention that. Yeah, it, it's really interesting to see how, how that's evolved over time and how it's really exploded. 
in the last few weeks and months? Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of nerdy. <laughs> yeah, right now, yeah, I just checked and it looks like it's just over 1.5%. Yeah, it's, it is fascinating. I think uh, uh, at the beginning of the year, it was like a thousand Bitcoins or something yeah. like that. And even a month ago, I mean, I presume also the Coinbase multi-sig vault has, has contributed to a lot of the explosion over the last month, but it, it's gone up like crazy. It's, it's like more than doubled in the last four weeks. Um, I wanted to ask an, another a brief question regarding uh, BitGo uh, and especially the use of multi-sig there. Yeah. So you mentioned you use two out of three multi-sig. Uh, do you also offer uh, other possibilities, for example, um, you know, two out of four or two out of two? Uh, or one thing that is uh, perhaps particularly interesting um we talked about this with uh, on the podcast we did on reality keys because he uses something like that although apparently it is a non-standard at the moment but that you'd have a multi-sig uh, address where it's not like two out of three but for example one address always has to be used and then it's any one of the other two or it's uh a two out of four address, but specific pairs can go together. I don't know if that's something um, you use, because that would, of course, be then one way, for example, to manage it if you had, let's say you had one, uh, a treasurer of the company who has to sign every transaction, but then anyone else can do it, but not two other people. Uh, are there things like that that you're also building or perhaps thinking of building for the future? Yeah. So uh, as of right now, we support two of three. Um, we will definitely be expanding the flexibility in terms of um, what that looks like. So more complex rules around um, number of keys, who needs to sign, etc. Basically what you just described. Uh, that's not available yet, but uh, there's a reason we're hiring all these engineers. So <laughs> stay tuned for a lot more uh, developments coming. Now, I'd like to go into some of the, I mean, just the usability aspect of this. This is probably the, the topic that I'm most interested in. So uh, just before the show, uh, I mean, I had created a BitGo account a little while back, but I had never actually just tried to use it and see how, how it worked. So I, uh, I, I opened up my account. I logged in. So there is a two-factor authentication. So I, I had to to get an SMS or use Authy to, to log actually log into the account. So that's like one uh, I guess, level of security, which uh, protects you even further than just having a, a password. And obviously, like best practice, everybody should use that. And then I, uh, so I created a, uh, a, a secure wallet. Uh, so a secure holding. So you can, I guess you can create just as many as you want, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. So you can create any number of wallets and um, as I mentioned before, each, um, each rule that you set is specific to the wallet rather than the account. And um, that's intentional in the sense that it gives you greater flexibility. So let's say you have a wallet that you want to hold as um, that has like 90% of your holdings and you really never want to transact out of it except on very rare occasions. For that one, um, let's say you were an enterprise user you could set a spending limit of um, zero, which means that any transaction would require um, an approval. 
if instead you decided to um, uh, have a wallet that you use to transact more frequently and therefore you don't need security to be quite as tight, you could set the spending limit to say five bitcoins. So any transaction under that limit doesn't require any other approval. But if you do go over that threshold, then you would want an approval on it. Okay. And so when you create one of these secure wallets, essentially you're, you're creating, it's not really a wallet, right? You're creating a, an HD wallet. It's not just like one, one address. You can then, it's a, you're starting from a seed and you can create as many addresses as you want within that secure uh, wallet. That's exactly right. So if you, um, I don't know if you want to go back to the screen share you were doing, oh, but if sure. you go ahead and click into the wallet, um, there's actually a tab called addresses. And um, that will show you basically all the addresses that you have generated. Um, yeah, so go ahead and click into the wallet. Okay, so just uh, for those of you listening, I'm actually showing the BitGo interface. So I created a wallet here. I called it Safe. Um, well, I'll just yep. I'll explain these transactions later. So yeah, so go I created uh, a few addresses here. Yep. So I've got three at four addresses actually that I created. Uh, I actually moved some Bitcoin at this. I wanted to try it out and I donated a few millibitcoins to Wikipedia because <laughs> they've been nailing me about it for for the last few weeks every time I'm going Wikipedia. So I said, oh, what the hell? Um, yep. Yeah, so here are the addresses I've created and I can create as many as I want, right? Exactly, yes. And those, um, as you can see, you'll, you'll see the balance of each of those. And um, for example, one use case in which that might be particularly helpful is let's say you're uh, expecting payment from five different people. You can generate a different address for each of those people. Um, and that way you'll be able to clearly tell who has paid you and who hasn't um, just by keeping track of which address you sent to whom. Yeah, and I mean, that's best practice. I mean, recommended to generate a new address every time you receive a payment from someone anyway. Right. Okay. And uh, so other things that we can do here, we can manage the wallet. So like you said, there are some spending limits that we can uh, determine. So we can set a daily spending limit yep. and a per transaction spending limit. So uh, that's kind of interesting. And, and like, maybe I'll go into, the, we can go into some detail about how this works. Uh, in a second, there's also a user access tab. So this is, I think, an enterprise feature. Yep, that's an enterprise feature. There's mm -hmm. also an address whitelist. So if you're really um, restricting the addresses that you're sending your Bitcoins to, I guess you can create a, a whitelist of addresses uh, that, that you can send your Bitcoins to. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, that's not, not so much um, for restriction, so much as for safety and um, kind of peace of mind. And what I mean by that is, obviously, Bitcoin transactions are not reversible. So you want to make sure that you're actually sending uh, your coins to the address that you intended to send them to. Um, and so what by adding, like, you know, let's say you're a company who regularly pays out um, a certain amount to a specific vendor every two weeks, you can add their address to that um, to that whitelist, and therefore you won't need to, you know, spend a lot of time double checking that um, you've got the right one every single time you need to transact. Okay. Now, one question that that I had before, and I I, I think I mean I'm, I have a pretty good idea of what the answer is, but it's it's not really obvious maybe to everyone. But these spending limits, um, these spending limits are enforced by bitco they're not enforced by the protocol so correct um so those yeah that's a layer that we've built on top yes 
That's the layer that you built on top. So uh, what that means is, however, that it, it, all this is a really good idea to, to set these spending limits. If by some chance someone were to get a hold of your key and your backup, those spending limits would not uh, be taken to, into account if they were trying to do a two out of three, three transaction with your backup and your uh, your personal private key. So in order to like bypass that limit, somebody would have to get a hold of your, well, there's quite a lot they'd have to get a hold of. They'd have to get a hold of your phone, your wallet passcode, your login credentials. So the probability of that happening is, I would say, rather slim, particularly if you're following, um, if you're following what we recommend in terms of uh, you know, best practices for passwords and, and that kind of management. So if somebody was using, trying to basically spend the money, not through BitGo, but through the backup tool uh, that would be used, let's also say if Bitcoin disappeared, uh, BitGo disappeared, uh, then this wouldn't apply, right? Well, in that case, so basically the way our um, backup key card works is that it has um, an encrypted copy of the keys so, and all of those are encrypted with the, the passcode that you have set for that particular wallet. So what that means is that you can literally like take your, I wouldn't recommend it by any means, but if you were so inclined, you could take your key card and like, you know, wave it around for the public to see. And unless they could somehow, you know, get a hold of your passcode, they wouldn't actually be able to do anything with your coins. So, um, it's again, it's very challenging, even if somebody has your key card, to yeah, yeah. even using the recovery tool actually spend those coins if you're not the rightful owner, because whoever does that also needs to know your passcode. So which means which means that every time you change if you change your password on a wallet, you need to regenerate a backup uh, key card. Um, no, you don't. Um, but you what you can do is you can essentially just send the funds to a new wallet if that makes you feel more comfortable. Okay. So just to be clear, so the, the key card is uh, is a document, a PDF document that BitGo sends to you or allows you to download when you create your wallet and is essentially your backup, uh, your I guess your backup key if anything happens that you lose your, um, uh, your password, it will allow, that key card would allow BitGo to retrieve your funds. Uh, well, it would allow, it would allow us to retrieve your funds. I mean, it would allow you, we don't ever retrieve your funds. So it would allow you to retrieve right. your funds. Sorry. I mean, it would allow you. Yeah. With the Either. So for example, if you forget your wallet passcode using your key card, you can retrieve your funds, basically move them into another wallet. Or if you lose your key card, you can still using the other two keys transact regardless. So essentially the, the basic premise is any one piece can be lost without actually, you know, losing access to your funds. Okay. And in terms of actually storing this backup, what are, in your opinion, the best practices with regards to keeping this key card? I mean, should you keep one uh, in your house, or should you have multiple uh, backups, like maybe at a friend's house or your parents, or maybe at a, in a bank vault? And 
and your and your your password also i mean a lot of people now are using services like LastPass to store their passwords and things like that uh, can you maybe talk about some of the best practices that you would recommend to to keep all that as secure as possible yeah so in terms of um storing your backup um you know as i mentioned it is encrypted which is comforting in the fact that obviously that adds another layer of security if somebody finds it it's not just going to be like oh there we go i can read it um, but we would still definitely recommend um, keeping it somewhere, you know, like a bank vault. It's it's important to remember that this key is not something that's needed to transact on a regular basis, and so it's really only used in the event of some sort of um, disaster recovery or something like that. So again, it doesn't need to be the most accessible thing in the world. Um, so if you have a safe deposit box, a bank vault, something like that, that's definitely, um, you know, a great place to store it. But it also depends on the use case, right? So if you have a wallet in which you're holding, like, I don't know, 20 Bitcoin, uh, it doesn't, you know, you don't need to go to the same lengths as you would, um, you know, if you were holding many millions of dollars. So I guess it, it, it really depends on, um, you know, kind of what you're holding in that wallet and what the, what the use case is. In terms of your passcode, um, yeah, I mean, passcode managers are definitely something that's has taken off in the past, I don't know, a couple of years. Um, also something that you can use. The most important thing to, to remember is just to make sure not to store your passcode with your key card, um, which might seem evident, but I always <laughs> point it out anyways, because, um, you know, if somebody does have those Security pieces, is never evident. <laughs> yes, exactly. So um, if somebody does have those two pieces, then that's not a scenario that we want. So um, obviously just making sure to keep those both secure, preferably in your head, but if not somewhere safe, but just not in the same safe place as the uh, key card. So um, I've... Uh, Two questions. They're very different, so let, let's do one by one. First of all, um, I, I was moderating this panel on Bitcoin security with Alan Reiner uh, at a conference uh, recently, and he said, you know, in his view, he always argues that the backups, the paper backups, should be unencrypted because, uh, I guess, in his point of view the risk of you being not able to retrieve the funds because somehow you lose the password uh, to uh, decrypt that paper backup is higher than somebody sort of physically stealing that thing. Um, do you agree with that? Or do you think maybe that's something that's true for individuals, but not for companies? No, I don't agree with that. Um, the way our model is built is even if you forget your passcode, as long as you still have your key card, you can retrieve your passcode. So there's no reason to have it unencrypted because so long as you have it, you can recover your passcode. So if you're, if you're storing it, I mean, I wouldn't really recommend storing anything unencrypted because that just adds a layer of risk okay then maybe my uh, so my my second question is this uh, and that's something that's been on my mind quite a lot also sort of thinking personally right so now i have a, a whole bunch of different wallets there's like some in there some in there um 
and you know some are in this like offline thing and some are maybe paper thing and and I think that uh, tends to be the case uh, with, with many people and then of course it can get very complex I mean even if we talk about something uh, as simple quote unquote uh, as someone using the Bitcoin Bitcoin multisig thinking through of like where do I store my passcode where do I store the paper backup like these shouldn't be in the same place etc um, just to have that clear I think this sort of from an operational aspect is super important so uh, what I thought about well, the really what one should do is one should write a, a document right exactly outlining uh, different scenarios like if this happens then that happens if uh, this these things have to be considered so I'm curious, is that something you do with your clients? Is that you sort of walk them through every step and maybe have uh, these kind of different scenarios that uh, so they they know uh, what exactly to consider um, and what they have to do if something goes wrong? Yeah, I mean, obviously we are always here to support them in the event something goes wrong. Um, but when, you know, when we do set up, I spend a lot of time kind of walking through um, security best practices, how to set things up, etc. So, um, you know, for example, we allow you to import an XPUB um, as the to basically create the backup. Um, so one of the keys is generated on BitGo servers. The second is generated client side in the browser um, when you create the wallet. And then you have the ability to import a third one, um, which we recommend generating on a uh, separate machine because you obviously never want to have any two of the three keys unencrypted on the same machine uh, because that opens you up to a level of vulnerability that obviously isn't good. Um, so, you know, for example, I definitely walk through all of those best practices and that sort of thing. Um, in terms of... Um, in terms of management, I mean, that really boils down to each individual customer's needs and use cases. Um, so some of them will have multiple people managing multiple wallets. And so depending on, you know, whether it's a wallet that's used for day-to-day -day spending or for more long-term holdings, um, then my recommendation is obviously going to vary. So it kind of depends on the use case as well. Now, I, I had an idea, so we were thinking about these sort of scenarios where, uh, and I think perhaps we don't think about this enough, but, you know, it, it, you know we, we all have these Bitcoins, and if something happens to us, maybe we get injured or permanently disabled, or maybe, maybe we die or something like that in an accident or something horrible like that, um, you know, and, and those Bitcoins essentially will die with you unless you've done something to uh, be able to pass them on to someone else. So how does uh, how would be able to implement some sort of third party retrieval uh, in the case of, uh, of someone uh, dying? Well, um, I mean, fortunately, this isn't a scenario that we've encountered, but I would suppose that um, if something like that happened, um, you know, let's say uh, your father has a Bitcoin wallet and he passes away, he's left you with access to, say, the key card, um, then if you were to come to us and, you know, obviously we would take whatever legal proceedings are necessary beforehand, but once that's been settled um, in that regard, then 
you know, with our key, we would be able to um, allow you to retrieve the funds. But again, not luckily, not a scenario that uh, we've we've really encountered. Obviously, the other option is to um, you know have multiple administrators on a wallet. So, for example, if let's say your father had uh, an account with Substantial Holdings, he could add you as an administrator as well as your mother. Um, and then in that event, you know, the two of you would be able to transact even without, um, even without needing his, uh, approval or signature on the transaction. Okay. So one could leave his key card with his, in his will, for example, right? Yes. Okay. And when, when someone comes to you with, uh, having lost their password and wanting to retrieve the Bitcoins with their key card, what sort of identity verification do you have to go through, if any, to unlock those funds? Is having the key card enough or is there an, an, a, another layer of ID verification that goes into um, uh, authorizing transactions? Yeah, so we still have two-factor auth on that as well. So we have a recovery tool that basically walks through the process requiring uh, regular login, uh, two-factor auth as well as the key card. Okay, and this is perhaps more of a technical question before we move on to uh, to other topics. Is and, and it kind of relates back to what we were talking about earlier, and, and the question of you know who holds the funds and such. Does Bitco with the with the keys that they possess, uh, with that that third key that they possess? Do they have the ability to actually see the funds? Do do they have access to that, or do they just see a bunch of encrypted addresses? In the sense, like, do we are we able to view wallet holdings? Yeah, are are you able to see client funds using simply that that uh, that part of the three keys that you have? We have visibility, but we don't have the ability to spend or transact or anything like that because okay. we only have the the key to cosign. Right. So, so essentially, what you're saying is like in in this safe in these addresses that I've created, Bitco has the ability to see the balance, or I mean, actually see the addresses that that are in uh, created in that HD wallet and the and the balances. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's something that wasn't clear with me. Yeah. So one thing I would just add to what we've discussed, I think we've talked a lot about multisig, but another thing that's um, I think interesting and not particularly well known um, is the fact that all our wallets are also HD, which is stands for hierarchical deterministic, and um, you know, as we mentioned uh, when you were sharing the screen, that allows for the creation of of basically infinite new addresses from the starting seed, um, and I think that's that's very important from not really not so much a security perspective, but from a financial privacy perspective. Um, because the blockchain is a public ledger, it's obviously available to anyone who cares to look at it. And um, what that translates to is um, the potential for sensitive information to be made uh, relatively accessible. So, um, you know, for example, let's say I'm a company that pays its employees in Bitcoin. Um, I send out, you know, there are 15 employees, I send out 15 transactions on the second Friday of every month. Um, if I'm the recipient of one of those transactions, I can obviously see which um, address the, the funds came from. And I'll also be able to see the other transactions that it made that particular day. 
So, for example, that would allow me to infer without too much difficulty, um, for example, how much my uh, coworkers' salaries were or, um, you know, any sort of thing like that. In the event that, um, you know, I'm a hedge fund that's holding assets in different, uh, in different wallets, somebody could, you know, identify me as the person who has control over those and then potentially threaten me or any other uh, number of unfortunate scenarios. And so HD wallets prevent that by basically um, masking where, uh, you know, which one of these addresses the transaction was coming from by spending from a different one each time. And so what that does is it just kind of allows you to maintain that privacy, even though you're transacting on a public ledger. That's really interesting. Uh, I like that idea. Thanks. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so so we're, we're kind of coming up towards the end of our show. Is there something else um, you want to cover uh, with regards to uh, BitGrow or multisig that uh, we should have asked about and, and that you feel is important that we haven't we haven't come to yet? No, I mean I'm I'm just really excited to see the ecosystem taking the lead and kind of following the path that we've set in the sense that you know we as a company and our CEO Will O'Brien published a piece. Um, titled something like it's time to end the uh, cold storage ice age. We've really encouraged <laughs> the ecosystem as a whole to adopt um, standards like multi-sig. We see these as not nice to have, but as really core to making Bitcoin something that's a viable financial instrument across the board. And, um, you know, it's not technology that we want to hide away and be the only ones offering. We really want the industry to be using it and improving upon it because ultimately it's in the entire ecosystem's best interest to have more people um, safely, securely holding their money. And um, so I think that's that's really the direction that we're headed in. Obviously, we want to stay a step or five ahead of everybody else doing this, but um, you know we think it's important for the industry as a whole. Yeah, and I think it's important as well for industry leaders to, like you say, set those standards, which then get adopted uh, by 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 every other actor in the industry. So, you know, um, good job on on Bitco for leading the the way on on security. And uh, and it it's also uh, you know like we talked about at the beginning of the show, it's it's very it's very interesting to see how that's evolved in in the last like it, it seems to be happening so fast. You know, just a few months ago, we were talking about insured wallets and cold storage, and kind of looking at that as as a, a solution for securing bitcoins. Um, you know, I'm I'd be interested in seeing where those where the security is gonna is gonna go in the next six months. I, I mean, I think in six months from now, we'll be looking back at this conversation and saying, you know, even though today we're looking at this and saying this is quite secure, we'll be looking back on this and saying, wow, like. That was so insecure. We've got so many more layers of security now. Yeah, or I agree with that, and also just making it more usable. That's something that we're constantly working on. Absolutely. So it's just like um, you you can never really rest on your laurels in the security and usability space, particularly when you're basically creating a new industry. So I totally agree. We'll have a very different conversation in in six months' time. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So perhaps moving on, just before we end the show, uh, so you are also a blogger. You write for uh, 
Coin, you've written for Coindesk, for Business Insider, and you also write on your own blog, uh, arianesimpson.com. And so uh, I, I was reading through your blog earlier uh, today, and, and you mentioned this before the show that you were in Africa. Uh, can you talk about your experience there and maybe relate that to Bitcoin? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think one thing that a lot of uh, naysayers of Bitcoin uh, repeat is that oh, you know, we don't need it, the financial system works. And first of all, I would argue that that's not necessarily the case. It, it very much works or doesn't work depending on who you ask um, and what their financial status is. But more broadly, I think that, um, yes, on the whole, the United States, for example, and a certain part of Europe have, um, you know, financial systems that are largely functional. But when you start moving into other parts of the world, you see that that's not necessarily the case. So um, I spent a, a good amount of time last year traveling through Southern Africa. And um, a lot of what I saw was really, really eye-opening in terms of um, you know, how different economies work and what those financial systems or lack thereof uh, look like. So you know, I think the most the most eye-opening uh, part of my travel for me was the time I spent in Zimbabwe. And um, I met a lot of people who really gave me a, a great deal of insight into how the economy had been devastated by um, their president slash dictator, uh, Mugabe. And he had, um, through, you know, basically completely reckless um, fiscal policies, printed money, um, used it to finance wars, excessive pay to his government and uh, army officials and by doing so basically caused rampant hyperinflation um, to the point where I think it was the second worst case of hyperinflation in the history of money which is quite uh, astounding but basically what what resulted was the fact that money was depreciating at such a rapid clip that people could not afford to buy anything. So stores were completely empty because the merchants couldn't afford to stock them. Um, hospitals had no medication. Doctors were not paid, so they were not working. People were dying for things that should have required a, a minimal dose of penicillin. And it, it really, really destroyed the, 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 the country's economy um, to the point where they eventually had to switch back to the dollar in order to uh, stabilize things. And things are certainly improving now, but um, there's still the, the after effects of that kind of economic disaster are still being felt very strongly. And um, so for me, I guess the, the, the relation with Bitcoin is the fact that because it's not controlled by any single government or single entity, um, there really is a substantial potential for avoiding this kind of thing um, in the sense that you know, currency manipulation is a lot more difficult in an environment in which there's no single actor, be that the government or um, a president, controlling all of the money supply. And, um, you know, I, I don't think that it's probable that, you know, in the next 10 years, we're going to see everybody ditching their currencies and switching over to Bitcoin. However, uh, even having Bitcoin as like a uh, secondary or supplemental currency, for example, in, in a place like Zimbabwe, I think could have significantly alleviated the effects of um, this kind of hyperinflation. And so obviously it's difficult to say how these things will play out um, 
in the long term from a geopolitical perspective. But I think that Bitcoin has a whole lot of potential in markets outside the U.S., which is sometimes underestimated. Yeah, I mean, a lot, a lot of times uh, people will use Africa and, and South America as examples of you know where Bitcoin can excel. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. However, a lot of these people, I think, maybe have never even set foot in Africa or South America. And well, um, I have. <laughs> exactly. No, but that, that's what I mean. And 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 uh, and when I read this post, uh, you could, it really shines through that you know, not only do you talk about this with uh, sort of this the 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 obvious um, advantages that people can can. Um, take from uh, using Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies in those places, but you have actually been there to see how people live and, and uh, how, uh, how we can benefit them in their, in their daily lives. So um, I think that you're particularly well-placed to talk about it. So that, uh, so that article that you wrote is called Why Bitcoin Matters in Africa. It's on, you wrote, actually it was written about eight months ago, but it's on your site at arianasimpson.com and along with all the other articles that you've written and I encourage everybody to uh, go to Ariana's uh, blog to uh, to read those articles. Thank you. Yeah, well, so uh, we're at the end of our show. So uh, thanks so much, Ariana, for joining us. It was, it was really interesting to talk about this. Um, I I very much agree with your assessment and sort of Bitcoin stance. I think uh, multi-sig is going to be absolutely integral uh, to Bitcoin's future. This is not some sort of optional add-on, but I think it will be totally embedded in how wallets work in the future. So it's, it's a really interesting topic and uh, it was super interesting to talk to you about. So thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. So um, one last thing, if you want to try out BitGo, you can do so and that's at bitgo.com. Uh, you can try out uh, the, just a regular multisig or they also have, if, if you are a company that wants to use some of their more advanced features, uh, there's like a request form. I think it's still in beta, but you know you can do that, and I presume they will get back to you. Yep. Um, also, uh, next week uh, we will have uh, our hangout with Daniel Pellet. He's the CEO of Gems. So Gems is a social networking uh, tool that is going to have its own currency. So it, I think it's going to basically incentivize users by paying them and sort of giving them uh, stock in the company. So it's really exciting. Uh, and they are also doing a crowd sale that's organized by Coinify. So you may remember Coinify from uh, our episode maybe a month ago or something when we had uh, Tom Ding on. Uh, so that's going to be uh, next uh, Sunday, at uh, so November 23rd at uh, 5.30 UTC, so that's 9.30 a.m. Pacific time or 12.30 p.m. Eastern time. And, uh, yeah, please watch live with us. Uh, that would be uh, that would be fantastic. And uh, to do that, uh, you uh, may want to subscribe to our YouTube channel so you will you'll get the notification there. And you can, of course, also find the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, uh, or wherever else you get the podcast. Please also subscribe to your newsletter at epicenterbitcoin.com slash newsletter and uh, leave us a tip. So, you know, if you listen every week and love the show, consider giving us uh, $5 a month subscription. I think you can do that with Coinbase now. Uh, so that's just $125 an episode. 
So thanks so much uh, and we look forward to being back next week.